Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. Um, my name is Katya. I'm the business editor of Wired UK. We've got a brilliant panel here today. As you have all seen yesterday and today, technology is driving rapid change in the world of education. Innovation promises to help children and adults, of course, as well, to learn better and smarter. For many years, we have heard that technology is kind of leveling the playing field a bit, and it doesn't really matter anymore whether you're sitting in, in the Silicon Valley or, or uh, in Nairobi, say, especially if you're a developer. But is that also true for education? How can technology transform education in the developing world? To discuss this issue, I'm joined here on stage by two education ministers from African nations. So we've got Dr. Amina Mohammed, Cabinet Secretary at the Ministry of Sports, Culture and Heritage in Kenya. And uh, Minister Matthew Opoko Prempe, the Minister of Education in Ghana. And also here with us today are two brilliant women leading the online learning revolution. Dr. Susie Datsenberg-Doyle, the founder of Right for Education and Queen of Kaeta in Ghana. And Tia Mirvold, the CEO of Teach Me Now and GetBe, and she was the winner of last year's Next Billion at Tech Prize. So let's welcome our brilliant panel. Thank you. Together, we will explore how education technology can enable and improve access to education in these two African countries, but also what lessons we can learn beyond. So let's dive straight in. Matthew, if I may start with you. And um, how are you reforming Ghana's education sector and what role does technology actually play? Uh, thank you. Um, technology has a huge role to play in um, ongoing educational reform and education in the country. But those of us coming from resource-constrained countries must plan carefully what kind of technology to introduce so that we don't exacerbate the digital divide and we also don't get lumped up with things that uh, we need to change rapidly because technology is changing uh, by the most law is changing every 18 months or six months. So we need to get into our system technology that is resilient, is robust, and is easy to use. Uh, or else there will be a problem. Besides that, we have to carefully think about content. Uh, for most uh, English-speaking countries, we have what we call the curriculum authorities. And we need to first resource them, not only to digitize content, but to be able to analyze what will be approved for our schools. Because once you introduce technology and they get access to probably internet, all manner of things can get on in your schools you don't have no control over. 
but you have to guard against it. So the technology that you are introducing must do certain things for you, I think. It must restrict, especially in the pupils or students, access to non-educative sites. So the content authorities or the curriculum authorities should fairly regulate what should be available for the broad generality of pupils and students. Mm -hmm. Not only should they control the content that is being fed to the students and what technology it is being fed on or modality, whether uh, it's through smart uh, tablets or through tele uh, mobile phones or laptops or whatever, has to be carefully controlled. But generally, technology is a leveler. If you're able to deploy it well, you save the climate of all these paper you are printing every year. It's easy to update and curricula or lessons or whatever it is. Then you also need to take the fear of technology out of your teachers. Uh, because generally, the kids are far better at, at adapting to technology than the teachers would be. So you have to use technology not only to support your teachers, but to give them resources that they will be able to help students. And in all this, not only digital uh, uh, literacy you want to achieve, you also have to be able to educate using the same technology about the fears of technology, about bullying, grooming, pornography, uh, cyber security, fraud. Uh, so you have to do a lot of things before I would say in a resource-constrained environment, mm -hmm. you just leave technology to run here. Okay. Thank you. Absolutely. Great. Thank you for that, Matthew. Amina, um, what are your experiences in Kenya? I know that you have rolled out um, National Education Management Information System. Like, it's a national database to monitor enrollments, healthcare for pupils, so on. So what's been its impact? And can you just talk more generally about how you're using education technology in Kenya? Well, thank you uh, very much. You know, I think all governments are interested in outcomes, yeah? education outcomes. And uh, we in Kenya have discovered that, in fact, uh, the best way uh, the, and the fastest way um, and the smartest way to get uh, outcome is uh, to use the technology that's actually available. It's there, right? And so what we did, we, we, we started out by um, putting in place the policies that were required, right? And those policies address the issues that uh, Matthew has talked to, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically the parameters, right? Um, uh, you know, where to introduce it, at what stage, how, right? Using what medium, yeah? Um, and in 2013, having put in place a number of policies, we then introduced the tablet in... Uh, in grade one, right? We introduced the tablets in grade one and issued every grade one child with a tablet. Of course, we were very, very clear about what content was going to go into those tablets. Uh, we've now moved to the next phase of implementing our, um, our, our, uh, our process of uh, basically using um, available technology uh, to get smart outcomes. Uh, uh, for our children and to prepare them for the 21st century. I think we've all heard that uh, there's a mismatch between the skills that are required and the learning that is happening in our schools. Um, and so now we've moved to a second phase and the second phase is uh, having 
uh, tech labs in schools. Yeah? So that we are not only addressing the concerns of the early graders, uh, but the others uh, as well. Uh, and so we put, in place, um, we put in place policies, we enacted a law on, on science and technology that was basically geared uh, to ensuring that we were getting the right technology, the right content uh, into, into the schools. Um, we realized at some point that uh, we actually had a problem, and I think this is uh, a, a challenge that exists across, across the developing world, of not knowing how many schools and how many learners you have. Right. Well, you're smiling, so <laughs> you're facing the same challenge. So we decided to then uh, start this national um, education management information system. Mm -hmm. uh, it's popularly known as NEMIS. Uh, we provided credentials for access to head teachers of primary and secondary schools uh, so that they, they could then input information on the students that they had uh, in school. And in order to convince teachers right, who, as uh, again Matthew said, needed the capacity, right, to use this technology, in order to convince them that this was a necessary evil, right, we told them that the capitation that they give, get from government, the money that is released by government to schools, will not be provided, right, unless you are on NEMIS, that we are going to use NEMIS to allocate resources to schools. And I can tell you that worked very, very fast. Everybody wanted to be on NEMIS because they didn't want to be cut off uh, from, the, from the resources. Well, the second thing we, the third thing that we started doing is train our teachers because the teachers can't teach what they don't know. Uh, in fact, it's very humiliating to a teacher to ask them to teach what they do not know uh, because then they become almost a laughing stock of their students, right? And so we started a training program for our teachers. It's ongoing. Uh, we have fully trained teachers for grade one uh, to three. By uh, September, we would have finished also with the grade four, right? And we'll continue doing that to just make sure uh, that uh, uh, the teachers know how to uh, then uh, provide the information, right? Teach, uh, teach this, uh, these learners. Uh, it's been said again that uh, our learners are actually better at this uh, than, than we are. Right? And so it's, it's going to take a lot of commitment from the teachers uh, to, to get that. We also uh, brought in pr the private sector because we realized that this cannot be a public sector affair. Right? And so we brought in, we, we started having partnerships, developed them, and so now we are actually working very, very closely with the Safaricom and others who are in the Kenyan uh, market space, right? And who are leaders in technology across, across the world. Um, the downside, again, is uh, you know, access to information that is uh, not good for, for the development of our children, right? And I think that's a, a better problem to have than have learners who cannot use uh, and utilize uh, you know, technology because you cut them off from the world that they belong to. Mm. Thank you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Amina. Um, yeah, actually, a question for you. So you're the head of uh, Teach Me Now startup. What is it exactly? Can you tell us what's it doing and how can organizations like yours support the education systems in, in um, Africa and elsewhere? Thank you for the question. So yes, um, my name is Thea and I'm the proud founder of teachmenow.com. We are, or we started actually as a global marketplace connecting teachers and students all over the world. In fact, our first class happened between a professor in Venezuela teaching a student in Saudi Arabia we've seen global connections ever since. Now the same technology that we use to build Teach Me Now, we also now offer to social enterprises, schools and educational providers to connect mentors, experts, teachers to students who want to learn. So be it anything from coding or languages to digital skills. 
And we have some fantastic programs actually in Kenya as well with a great social enterprise called NairoBits where we're connecting mentors, I'm sure maybe you're aware of it as well, mentors in the ICT learning space. And here in the UAE, we're also very proud to work with His Highness Sheikh Mohammed on a program called One Million Arab Coders, teaching one million Arab youth beyond just Dubai, but also in North Africa and, and all over the world, how to code. So we truly believe in personalized, live and on-demand learning, connecting you to a real person, a real teacher, halfway across the world. So I believe that technology is a facilitator, and it was beautifully said in the opening session as well. Technology is a facilitator to connect people, and we believe in human connections. So through connecting people all over the world, amazing impacts can happen as well. Absolutely, I totally agree. Thank you. That's great. Um, thank you for that. Susie, we haven't heard from you yet. Uh, so you're the founder of Right for Education. What's your take on the role of technology in Africa and, and elsewhere? Well, my start is by having had a school in Africa, in Ghana, and in Quetta, and I realized that people learn to read and write, but then they lacked relevant African-centric information to actually understand the kind of conversations young adults have typically with their parents. A lot of the children in my community, their parents had never seen a contract, never understood vaccination, did not understand what illnesses are, did not understand financial literacy, and any a number of other kind of grown-up topics, women's rights. Um, and what I thought is it would be really good if we could discuss with them rather than tell them what is relevant for them in an African-centric way. What is Ebola? What is a bacteria? And why do you get vaccinated? And when we started about four years ago, the first um, publication we did on social media, which most Africans have access to, um, the download, the, the amount of people who were on the site was just phenomenal. So in four years, seven and a half million people, that's about 7% of all Africans on social media, are now reading our information. The information is um, very objective. It's, most of it is written by Oxford graduates from the University of Oxford who rewrite African information in an African-centric way. We teach them how to write so that it's easy to read. We translate it into French. We make we are Facebook basic. In other words, everybody has access to it. And our goal is to homogenize certain values in Africa, which at the moment are quite inhomogeneous. For example, we need to agree on things like environment. We need to agree to a certain moral code on, for example, things like corruption. And we need to agree on, on women's rights, for example. And I think all these values, if they're homogenized across the continent, uh, progress can be done very quickly. Mm. Thank you for that, Susie. Um, you've all kind of mentioned, to some degree, the idea of personalized learning. Um, so self-paced learning through technology, of course, it's not a new concept, and it's been used before, uh, even in countries with a strong digital infrastructure. But I just wonder how successful that approach actually is, depending on the country where we are. So I guess um, it would be good to hear from you, Tev, first, because this is actually what, what you do. And then maybe if the others could also pitch in and, and uh, give us your experiences with personalized approach to education. So, what do you think? Is it actually working? Yes, and I definitely believe in the personalized learning approach. So I'm sure in this conference we've all heard of things like MOOCs or massively open online courses, pre-recorded video content. 
Well, although that's a fantastic resource, it has a very high dropout rate, right? Up to 90%, even if it's for college um, graduation rates. So that part hasn't necessarily worked because it's, it's mostly pre-recorded, it's not personalized. So going back to personalization, I think that's really key because that's where you see the impact. If you're struggling with something specific, again, having access to the right mentor or expert to guide you through really makes a difference. So again, going back to remote locations and, and in developing countries, if you have access to that right expert, that right mentor, that can make all the difference in the world. And through technology, if you can facilitate that connection, then that's a beautiful thing. Mm. Great. Matthew, what's your view? Thank you. Um, the problem with online courses is about quality assurance. Mm -hmm. Who assures us that that course being offered is the right one for the right person. <laughs> and I'm not convinced that we are there yet with the quality assurance. But to use those same courses to help individuals is, is key, the availability. Absolutely. Uh, and I would encourage people to do that. Back home in Ghana, we have what we call the iBox, where this is an online, offline technology developed in Ghana with pre-recorded live video lessons and we can monitor kids individually across different subject areas, even in the same classroom, mm -hmm. where the kids interact with the machine through Wi-Fi or all sorts of connectivity, not necessarily the internet as well. So it is important. But if we are going to use online education in offering degrees and certification, then we have a problem in that last mile about who is really undergoing or undertaking that course, which we haven't probably solved well. That's why MOOCs is not working. Yeah. But for personalized, individualized learning, it is something that for a kid that is motivated can engage. Most kids who are motivated engage through technology in play things, not necessarily directed towards learning or education. But if you can motivate the child to adopt a system where it improves learning, and that child, then no kid wants to tackle difficult subjects. Uh, unless there's proper a teacher around or a parent around to really help that child through. Yeah. Uh, if I went to school and I'm not good at maths and you gave me the best maths program on a smart tablet, I would still avoid maths. Mm -hmm. There must be somebody making sure that gradually I am going through the steps to get familiar with the concepts that I don't understand. And, and that is why no matter how personalized you are learning, you need somebody around to guide and guard you to make sure you are moving ahead. Uh, and I think that if we can afford that, that means that we are empowering the parents and the teachers. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because you put the thing in all the classroom and the teacher truly can identify who is lagging. But that teacher must be resourced to, to help with remediation of the class or else that becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, personalized adaptive learning because of technology, it's very, very simple to do. But then again, you need to resource both the parent or the parent and the teacher 
to be able to help the child go through difficult things. Absolutely. So teacher is key, basically. Teacher is a key. Right. I mean, uh, I agree. I agree that uh, uh, the teacher that supports, right, um, um, the whole learning process is, is key. Uh, but again, there is no one shoe fits all, okay. right? Um, because there are parts of the of the world and in our countries too where uh, there is uh, either a total inadequacy of teachers or there is no teacher, mm. right? Where actually this personalized. Right? Adaptive learning would be the answer uh, to getting uh, our children educated. And so I, I think, you know, you have to strike a balance. You have to strike a balance. Where you have teachers, then of course, have the teacher be the mediator yeah, through which learning happens. Uh, but in parts of the, of, in my own country, there are parts of the country where you, the, the, the teacher-student ratio is so low that you actually need technology to support, to support learning. We find, um, we take topics like STEM topics which are straightforward and we support teachers and we agree teachers are essential. Um, social media has a really huge advantage is you can try different lines of arguments and see how people respond. I, I'd like to give the example of, of, of FGM and um, we, written, we got written articles about FGM by our authors and uh, the first lines were it hurts the child. Uh, nobody cared. Um, the second line was, it, it's not pleasant doing labor. I can assure you, nobody cared. The third line of arguments, always two or three books, you know, publications on it would be very difficult to write, but it was about the, the metal life with a woman who's cut and how it actually changes things. Interesting, nobody cared. And then we had the fourth line of arguments, um, which was that we all believe in God, and um, if we think God is the ultimate creator of this world, and if he thinks he creates perfection, then why do we think we should correct him? I can assure you the continent was hopping. There was discussion, exchange, interest, and groups discussing it. I don't think they would have discussed it face to face with the elders. But there they can discuss it in, in a platform which nobody sees, where they're independent and free. So what we have done this on many, many different subjects, and we know what is interesting and not interesting by country, by area, by age group, by gender, by culture. And we now have an enormous amount of data of what is really relevant in which area and, um, and, and how it touches the nerves of the people who are concerned, for example, by women's rights. Um, we certainly know where the spike is on that discussion, what, what interests Africans about women's rights. And so we can use this tool in a very different way to the education tool. And we don't see ourselves as a replacement, but as a support. Mm. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Facilitate our support system. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about private versus public education. So we know that you know, private schools usually, usually um, lead in the use of technology to improve the outcomes <coughs> of the classroom. But in your countries, how, can you tell us how governments actually drive the adoption of new education technologies, specifically in the public sector? Maybe if you start, Matthew. Um, ours is a centralized system, so if you want to introduce something, you don't, yes, you might do a pilot, but as soon as you finish with your pilot, you have to skip. Uh, because everybody will come against you. Why are you providing something for half a third of the society and not the rest? Mm. So governments really have no way out but to scale. 
But it means that there should be a rigorous process set up in adopting a technology that is resilient, that is robust, uh, that is easy to use because some of the smart tablets you cannot use in some parts of our countryside. Uh, so maybe we need, even in technology, we have to build technology that suits certain environments and, and communities. Mm -hmm. But like I said, if governments have tools or technology to scale, then they think about resource. Mm -hmm. We have an iBox that we think is a world beater, but we don't have the resources yet to scale. Because we think that even if we put the iBox in the school, just like uh, Amina said, uh, where there are no teachers, the kids can aggregate, provided you have a coach or somebody, a parent, who can volunteer. And in some communities, the mothers can volunteer to take turns to look after the kids. Mm -hmm. uh, provided you do that and you are technology, there can be serious learning that is happening even in those communities. Uh, but governments to scale need their resources and that is why, mm -hmm. that is how sometimes it's difficult to introduce technology. Mm -hmm. yes. Because every minister will think about scaling. Uh, every minister will think about scaling. Mm -hmm. and, and that brings constraints between Ministry of Finances and Ministry of Education and, yeah. and general government support. Other ministers think the Ministry of Education is taking all the money uh, but in the private sector, it's not like that. But that also has its different constraints. Mm, right. How, how is it in Kenya? Well, the same thing. Uh, standards and quality are a central government uh, function. Yeah? And, um, and so we regulate. We regulate all that. Um, same thing with technology. Right? It has to be right. It has to be resilient. And, of course, the contents have to be quality assured. Yeah? Um, you know, we're a country that has a lot of private schooling, by the way. I, I think one of the things that we do very well is provide education services that um, I think are the same level with any other country in, in the world. And uh, any school that you would like to take your child to is present in Kenya, whether it's a Turkish school or a French school or an American school or a British school. Um, you know, we have a Swedish school or a German school. We have all of them. Uh, but the one thing that remains constant is at some level, right, the standards and the quality must be assured by central government. Mm. You know, otherwise it can't exist. Mm. I would agree with that. Um, I think it, 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 it should be government driven. Um, our method obviously is incredibly scalable and that's exactly how we now have our, you know, people are interested to scale good ideas with us and if there are any successful projects anybody would like to scale up, we are the people who'd love to get this going, we're in 45 countries, 7% of all social media users use our platform to exchange their thoughts. And um, we are very much driven, not just by what we send out, but we obviously read what they answer back. Mm -hmm. And then the next line of arguments is adhering to what their needs is. Because it's not always clear that they understand what we try to say. And um, we do 24 hour checks on what we send out. And um, on one occasion, it was very good that we did do, did do the check. Mm. Great. Thank you, Susie. Um, let's talk about social media. I think it's an important uh, issue. Um, do you think, maybe say I'll start with you, do you think it's a great opportunity to kind of reach out to lots of people and improve access to education as well? Or is it a distraction? Or how can we balance, um, balance the two? I think like any technology, it's always a double-edged sword. Right? There's positives and negatives. 
Um, but I think, as, as very beautifully demonstrated by this conference, you know, we're all posting about this conference on social media, and we're all talking about education this weekend. So I think that's a fantastic opportunity, right, and a use case. Um, but of course, it can be a distraction in, in some situations. Um, but going back to what was said earlier about scalability, the beauty of technology in itself is that it's scalable. And that is, that is the underlying point of it all, right? So there are many ways to use it for good. And we are a very big believer of tech for good and proving those use cases. Mm -hmm. So again, going back to accessibility as well, technology can be used in many different ways to make knowledge or learning accessible, be it through social media or other digital tools. And if we think about people with determination, for example, or people with disabilities, accessibility is key. So being able to access that through technology is, is important. So social media can be a facilitator for that but other platforms as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. What, what do you guys think, maybe Amina or uh, I do agree with uh, my colleague. Uh, you take social media like electricity in the house. Uh, mm -hmm. It's everywhere. Uh, it's a fantastic servant, but a bad master. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like fire. Our moms use it to cook. Fantastic servant. <laughs> But when it gets out of place, it's become a very bad master, like knife yeah. in the kitchen. So you can look at social media like that. But it's how we groom or how we train or how we educate our pupils and our students to interact with these different uh, form of tools. Uh, like I said, if the digital literacy drive in the country informs and educates the kids about bad behavior, about bullying, about, about pornography, about fraud online, about these things, the, the kids become even better empowered. Just like a mother would educate their child, don't play with a knife or else you get cut. There will be bad children like me who will go and play and get, get cut anyway, but next time won't go near the knife. So we have to inform and educate the kids not to turn them away, because it's everywhere. Social media is everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. We cannot live our lives lately. I, interestingly, as Minister of Education, is very, 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 have very, very poor knowledge about social media. Mm -hmm. But every day I get reports, people opening Facebook accounts in my name and defrauding people. If mm. you do, I am not there physically or, or uh, in that space, but people are doing it. So it's better for me to do it and let people know that this is the right way to get to the minister than to run away from it and they will do it in your name anyway. Yeah. Uh, so it's how we interact yes. with these things. Yeah. Thank you. I think uh, it's, it's like it's a fire and as long as you can learn to cook with it, yeah, uh, because I can tell you that it's a, it's a, sometimes it's a necessary evil, yeah, and at other times it's very, very productive and useful. You know, the examples that uh, you've given of FGM and having conversations that you would not uh, be able to have openly otherwise, right? Um, but it also has this power, right, uh, over things that happen, and that power can be extremely destructive, right? Um, it also... Uh, 
supports some bad behavior, right? I mean, we all know about the levels of suicide, for instance, amongst young children, the levels of suicide uh, in our colleges and universities, you know, driven by uh, mostly social, social media, right? And so it is a necessary evil. I think we just have to learn to manage it. Uh, but I think it's really critically important, very, very important, that parents, right, play that role of actually introducing their children to social media um, so that children have the confidence, the courage, and the trust, right, to come back to that parent or to that guardian or whoever it is that's providing a support system for the child to ask about things that, you know, they may either not understand or are, in a way, influencing them to do the wrong things, yeah? Mm. And, and so, yeah, it's there we, we have to live with it. But I, I also think that we must have some rules of the game, right, at some point. I think it's not okay for social media to be used to destroy, right, uh, by actually faceless individuals and faceless, you know, uh, societies, right, uh, that exist, that will, with no responsibility and no duties, right, that, that flow from that right to use uh, this technology that, that's out there. So, uh, so I don't know, I, I know that um, uh, it's, it's going to be there and, uh, well, I use it, I use it, and I, I hope I use it effectively, actually. Uh, but I also know how uh, terrible it can be. So I think, as, uh, like, any, uh, like everything else, you know, I, as we continue using it, we must also develop a roadmap uh, for how, how much can be used by children at what age. You know, being uh, in education, I think I'm so conscious of how easy it is to destroy a child, right, uh, without them actually realizing that what they're doing is destructive. Absolutely. Um, well, we talk a lot about the, the negative effects on, on social media. In my case, I'm, my age group of followers are between 16 and 35. And when I look at my space and, and the way I get approached by, by people who would like to do business with me, I find it quite exhausting and close to irritating how many um, companies with bad intention approach me and how I've never been approached by a company with good intentions. How come that never ever an education company said to me, for very little money I could um, educate a continent in my case. But how come that the people who want to sell not very good deals, they all find me and I get an offer of that nature, sometimes daily, certainly weekly and for the last couple of years. And so there's an exchange rate of 100% on one category and 0% on the other category. And I think unless governments start thinking, I use this tool, and I'm also putting some money into it, which is very little, it's, you know, you talk the amount of money of salaries of people rather than millions of people around, um, that is the problem rather than the social media platform. Mm. So the attitude has to change from the people who have options on how to use it. Thank you, Susie. Um, I suggest we open up the floor to questions. Um, anybody have any questions for the panelists? Yes? Thank you. Uh, my name is Sunny Leong. I'm chair of the Council for Education in the Commonwealth. Uh, it's a statement and a plea. Uh, it's uh, quite common where the tussle between Ministry of Education and Ministry of Finance as far as budget's concerned. How much, what's it for, and at what level of education? 
And this will go on, and until and unless the government have got a commitment to spend money on education, it will just be given to the private sector. And it's, it's uh, good to have a private and public uh, players in the education sector because that drives up standards and competition. The plea really here is every, if every government accepts the Fiji Declaration, whereby education is 4 to 6% of GDP, or 15 to 20% of government spending, and the spending is not necessarily just infrastructure itself, but on teachers and materials that will go a long way. Thank you. Um, just behind you, if you there is a, yeah. Hello, my name is Vimbai and I'm from Zimbabwe. Um, I wanted to address, uh, or I guess put a question to the two ministers. When at the beginning you spoke about technology, um, I think there were issues raised about assurance, I think from the minister from Ghana, about how there's no real assurance on the quality of content being delivered. And one of the things you said was that the teachers are key in making sure that whatever technology is, is put out there um, is assured. So as governments, what sort of work are you doing to ensure that in teacher training colleges and universities, you're equipping these teachers and actually introducing to them to the technology at an early stage so that we can grow with it and scale? Because one of the issues we do have as a continent is we don't have enough teachers and the technology will help solve that problem. So I'm, I would like to think the governments are doing something in that aspect. And if so, what, what are the things that you're doing? Thank you. When we talk about technology in this space, I'm not expecting the teachers to develop the technology. The technology to support teaching and learning. And we in Ghana, we have a new curriculum developed that we started rolling out last year that is bringing all these 21st century issues to the classroom so that the teacher, when he or she graduates from school, is already empowered to teach as expected. Uh, we have aligned our pupil standards and our uh, school curricula that we want to start in September this year in line with the teacher curricula that was developed. So we are trying to do things the right way and to introduce some digital literacy in the teacher training profession and also have a continuous professional education that would bring these teachers who are in service up to speed. Uh, so there's a lot that we are doing. When I talked about adoption of technology, I was talking about the curricular authorities in the country, making sure, look, there are thousands, uh, over thousands of online apps and e-content that is available. Is it all equally good for the classroom? Probably not depending upon the curricula that is being run. That is why I said that certain countries have curricular authorities that approve of things that go into the classroom. And we should make sure that technology we are adopting ensures that these kids are open to only those things that are essential for learning in the classroom and avoids distractions and things like that. So there, like Amina said, the central government is, 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 is responsible for regulation, standards, and quality assurance. So it should ensure that space is done well. And it should resource the curricular authorities, especially the adoption of educational technology, to be smart. Thank you. Anybody else? Uh, yes? 
maybe to answer the question from the Commonwealth, right? It, it takes political will. It takes political will. And it's actually not even about the Minister for Education and the Minister for Finance. I think that that, yes, I think that that um, uh, responsibility uh, belongs to the leadership of the country, right? Uh, in our case, for instance, we spent 27% of our budget on education, right? Uh, I think that's a fantastic beginning. It's the highest. <laughs> it's the. Um, it's, it's almost uh, 45%. So um, it's 27% going to 30, because that commitment has already been made that we're going to move to, to 30%. Yeah? Uh, so that commitment has to come from the leadership, because then it trickles down to all the minist ministries and ministers. And uh, it helps to, of course, be a friend of the Minister for Finance, because then uh, he, he would react much faster right, to any request that you put across. But it is about political will. Um, in the country and where education is, right, as a priority, right, and an urgent one for, the, for countries, uh, especially those countries from our part of the, of the world. Great. Thank you. Uh, we had a question here. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. My name is Troyo Siakirili. I come from Nigeria. And um, I was hoping that the Nigerian Minister of Education would be here, unfortunately. We didn't do that in one. Um, <laughs> yeah. I... I mean, maybe the people who don't come from Africa don't understand the depth of the challenges we have as a continent. Um, but Rwanda seems to be showing a lot of promise in terms of how they're funding education. Uh, public schools are so good in Rwanda today that private schools are shutting down. Um, I wanted to speak to the issue of education funding and how the lip service of government is not in any way going to raise the quality on, and standards of education that um, you talked about. I think it's important that I wanted to, we need to agree on who regulates this um, standards and quality. In Nigeria, you've got more, I, I, Lagos, for example, where I live, is the most popular city in Africa. And you've got about 7,000 secondary schools and about 70 or 80% of them are private schools with the rest being public schools. And it takes me to the issue of poverty, diversity, and inclusion. When we sit in rooms like this to have this sort of discussions, I don't know if we remember that our continent is hugely dominated by poor families. Where in Nigeria, where I come from, Nigeria has just taken over from India as the country with the largest amount of poor people in the world. That is an, a huge irony, given that we're an oil-rich country. So my question is, how do we take technology to underserved poor communities in low-income countries? Because when we talk about this issue, and I see a lot of private, I mean, I'm going to go for the PPP session, but I see a lot of, I, I'm, 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 I'm confused about how government is going to be able to attract private sector investment without compromising the system to the private sector such that because they bring the money to the table, they are the ones who dictate to the government how to run. Because at the end of the day, the private institutions will always think about profit. And it's the responsibility of the government to rein them in about the fact that, number one, fundamentally social impact is crucial. So how does the government make sure that you get private sector to put money on the table? How do you create incentives and reward systems for the private sector, but do not compromise to them to then determine which communities that will give this. Because at the end of the day, if we do not educate our children, 
we're going to keep building bigger prisons in Africa. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> coming, coming from a country that I've had a big bashing by unions and NGOs uh, <laughs> recently. Yeah. But it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what private sector is. If, if you don't define private sector well, in the continent we come from, when you hear the word privatization, it's evil. But then, I, I met one of the people who were bashing government, and I, I, he has an NGO. And um, he said Ghana government is privatizing basic education. And we're all horrified from the president down to myself, uh, because in our constitution, we said free compulsory universal basic education. You can't privatize when that's what the constitution says. But somebody was trying to be very, very mischievous by using, and then when I had the chance to meet, he said, oh, it's PPP. I said, you don't understand. You have a basic misunderstanding of the work you are doing in this country. Because his argument was that if we privatize, we are bringing extra resources to these people who are going to manage these government schools. Then I said, hold on, let's use for ABC logic. Privatization means taking public good or service for a, a profit organization, a non-state actor. That is privatization. My understanding of what we are trying to do in Ghana is to let people who are not for profit people manage some of these schools because essentially some of the problems we have, especially some of the problems we have is managerial. Because in the public sector in basic schools in our country, we find that the teachers are paid three times higher than in the private sector in the basic, uh, in the basic education. Uh, public teachers are better qualified than private teachers. Why are they giving better learning outcomes? And in, in, in that challenge, you don't sit and become very, very myopic and say, this is the way. You have to try different ways and different uh, uh, programs to see which one gets better. So we're going in the area of management. But we're talking about for not-for-profit organizations, really. So when I met this, chairman, this gentleman, I said, for faith in Ghana, faith-based organizations manage most of our schools. But you forget that faith-based organizations are private sector. It's not government. But their ethos, their push, everything is about religion. NGO is a private sector thing, but they are not for profit. So essentially, in the private sector, we have those who are for profits and those who are not for profits. Why do we think that for, if I give a school for not-profit to manage, not-for-profit school to manage, I'm doing something horrendously bad. Then no NGO can work in my country because they are all managing aspects of my education. Either they are into teacher training or providing resources for teachers or providing better learning outcomes in one way or the other. Even if they are giving food for free as part of central government functions that is not discharging well. So if you don't educate, people think private sector necessarily is bad. It is not. Because we in Ghana, at least, for most of our best schools, they are already 
not private sector in the sense for profit, but they are faith-based managed. So we have schools by the Ahmadis, schools by Anglicans, schools by Catholics, uh, SDA. That has lived with us for a very long time with nobody complaining. And the schools are managed in the sense that it's these faith-based organizations that choose the head of the school and the chairman of the school board or, the, or whatever we call it. So in, in, when I sit as a minister, minister, my overriding thing is how can I improve quality and learning outcomes? How can I improve that in the context of my constitution that says free compulsory universal basic education? That we are redefining to include secondary education. So I cannot go for a profit body ever to come and manage a school. So those are some of the things that you have to have something to a value to drive you before you look for the things to support that value. Thank you. No, I agree completely, except that um, um, in Kenya, we have actually agreed that we're going to compete, right? And so there's real competition between the private schools and the public schools. And remember, it's a government, central government that regulates, right? Sets the standards and the quality assures, okay? And what I found extremely amazing in this one year that I've been in the, in the Ministry of Education, right, is that immediately these children complete their primary education, right? We are all competing for government, public, secondary schools. It's, isn't it true? And, and actually, it annoyed me quite a bit. It annoyed me quite a bit because I kept saying, you came from the private schools. Why should we allow you to go into our public secondary schools, right? And then I quickly remembered that all these were Kenyan children and that since we had, right, we had a responsibility, right, to ensure that there is a right to education for all children in the country, whether Kenyan or not, yeah, that we cannot stop them from accessing our fantastic public secondary schools, right? Uh, you know, so, so I think, look, what I think is that there should be balance in everything, but you cannot close down a country and say, that in this country we will only have public schools and we will not allow private schools to operate. I think competition is good. It improves standards, right? And improves the quality of learning that you, you, your children can access. Thank you so much. I think we're out of time. If you have other questions, I'm sure you can ask them afterwards. But thank you so much, our brilliant panel. Thank you.